Let's uh, turn to the Word of God now, and I'd like to pray uh, as we once again open the book of Exodus. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we give you thanks and we give you praise and we give you all the honor that is worthy of your name. Lord, we ask your help this morning once again as we go to this ancient word that, Holy Spirit, you would come and teach and guide and encourage and bring comfort, whatever it is your pleasure to do through your word this morning. Uh, We pray that you would have your way. And dear God, may we leave this place later changed because of this time that we are spending in your inspired word. We thank you most of all this morning for Jesus Christ and for all of the spiritual blessings that we have in him. We pray your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Israel was under brand new ownership. We remember that prior to the events of the Red Sea in Exodus 14, the people had been under the ownership of Pharaoh. The people had lived within the borders of Pharaoh's Egypt. They had been slaves of Pharaoh's empire, and they had been the objects of Pharaoh's whims. But Yahweh had changed all that. Yahweh had liberated the people from Egypt by a mighty hand, and because Yahweh had done the liberating, it was Yahweh who now staked his claim on the liberated people. Yes. As liberator, Yahweh reserved the right to establish new rules for the ones he had liberated. And so now, although the people were freed from Egyptian borders, the people would now be subject to Yahweh's borders, Yahweh's laws. But you see, Yahweh's laws, in dramatic contrast to the death-dealing laws of Pharaoh, Yahweh's laws were delightful laws. Yahweh's laws were intended for human flourishing. One way we can understand the laws that God gave at Mount Sinai is they were a gift. The law given at Sinai was a beautifully wrapped gift given to the newly liberated Hebrew people. The law was a gift because it gave specific divine instruction to the new nation for the task of organizing community life. And the law was a gift because it gave specific instructions in the area of worship. And the law was a gift because it addressed the question of how it would be that the people would preserve their newfound liberty. The law was a gift to these freed slaves. We need to understand that. Without the gift of the the law, they would have to manage simply on their own, using their own wits, which never seems to go very well for human beings. This morning, the sermon title is The Ten Words, otherwise known as the Ten Commandments, but actually we're only going to meditate on the first word, the first commandment, for the sake of time. 
The other nine will have to wait for another day, perhaps another sermon series way out in the future somewhere. But just before we venture to the first commandment, I wanted to just uh, say a few things by way of introduction to the ten words. First of all, why is Pastor Brent using this terminology, ten words, instead of ten commandments? Well, the reason I prefer ten words over ten commandments is simply that the Old Testament never uses the language ten commandments. Rather, the language used in the, in the Old Testament is ten words, ten davarim, ten words. And the term words suggests, doesn't it, communications rather than suggesting legislations. Legislations is suggested if we use ten commandments. But these ten words are ten communications we need to see spoken intimately and directly by Yahweh himself to his people. And the Old Testament scholar Daniel Block has suggested that perhaps the reason there are ten words and not, say, seven or twelve might be because most of us have ten fingers on our two hands. Block wonders if there is a word per finger so that people could memorize them better. The essential covenant relationship, which really is what is summed up in the ten words, could be rehearsed using the hands, one for each finger. It was a way to perhaps memorize them. Now, what is it that's so special about the ten words? Well, again, within Judaism, the ten words have been taken as the essence of Torah, the essence of God's whole law. It's probably no coincidence that we have in the Torah 613 laws, and the ten words in the book of Exodus are apparently made up of 613 Hebrew letters. Now, I haven't personally stopped to count the letters in the ten words, but this observation of 613 letters in the ten words corresponding to 613 laws in the entire Torah, the entire law of God, this is a common observation. And again, if accurate, it would suggest, would it not, that the ten words were meant to provide us with the essence of of the law of God, of the Torah. But now the ten words are special, or we might say the ten words deserve to be held in a sort of special place of high esteem within the law of God. They're special for at least three other reasons. For starters, when we look at all the divine revelation that is given at Mount Sinai, it's only the ten words that are spoken, listen, directly by Yahweh to the people. That's another reason why the ten words are especially significant. Secondly, the ten words are especially important because only they were written by the finger of God, as Exodus 31.18 reports. And then third, of all the revelation given at Sinai, only the ten words were specifically preserved in duplicate on tablets of stone 
which were then stored in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and later in the temple. So it's clear, I think, that the Bible wants us to see a prominence, or it wants us to have an especially high esteem for the ten words. Now, many theologians, we're still doing introductory stuff here, many theologians have noted that the ten words have a basic structure about them. This is important. The first four words or commandments have what we can call a vertical orientation. That is, the first four commandments or words speak to the God-human relationship. Let's walk through them. Number one, you, humans, shall have no other gods before me, God. That's a vertically oriented command that speaks to the God-human relationship. Number two, you, humans, shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, etc. So another vertically oriented command that focuses again on the divine human relationship. Number three, you humans shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Number four, remember the Sabbath day, humans. And if they kept Sabbath, they would be imitators of God who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. So again, those first four words have to do with the vertical relationship between us as human beings and our God But then the remaining six words or commandments, as has often been noted, focus more on the horizontal relationship, the relationship on the human-to-human relationship. So, word number five of ten, horizontal. Honor your father and mother, that's what we're trying to do here on Mother's Day, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. It's basically horizontal. Human to human. Number six, you shall not murder. Again, a horizontal, human to human focus there. Number seven, you shall not commit adultery. No third parties in the marital relationship. Number eight, you shall not steal. It's a human to human concern. Number nine, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And then the tenth word, you shall not Covet. So horizontal commandments there, numbers 5 through 10. So that really what we could justifiably argue, and this is where it's important, is that with commandments 1 through 4, the general focus is love your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. And with commandments 5 through 10, the focus is love your neighbor as yourself. And a little church historical tidbit for you here. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is an important teaching tool in the history of the church written in the mid-1600s, 
asks the following question. This is question 42 in the Westminster Shorter Catechism. It asks this. What is the sum of the Ten Commandments? And the answer that's given in the Catechism is, the sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, Commandments 1 through 4, and to love our neighbor as ourselves, Commandments 5 through 10. And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ said, didn't he, in the passage that was read this morning, Matthew 22, that all the law and the prophets depend, or all the law and the prophets hang on loving God with the whole of us and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So hopefully in all this, we can begin to see why the Ten Commandments are so momentous so significant and so essential. What I want to do with the remainder of our time this morning is to walk through the corridors of just the first three verses of Exodus 20, which give us both the prologue to the ten words and the first word itself. So please open your Bible. Come with me to Exodus 20, if you're not already there. And let's just read the first two verses together here. Exodus chapter 20. The word of God says, and God spoke all these words, saying, I don't know if I should do this with the echo or not, I am the Lord your God, 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 it's got to be this this majestic, I obviously can't do it, I am the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, friends, as it was last week when we looked at Exodus 19.4, so it is here with these verses of Exodus 20. Notice again, very carefully, linger over this with me. The prologue here to the ten words that happens at Exodus 20, verses 1 and 2, is all about gospel. Notice that. Crucial fact. We get gospel here. We get this moving description of God's grace in action for his people before we ever get to commandment number one which happens in verse 3. Do you see this? Redemption for Israel had already been undertaken, had already been executed and finished by God himself, all by himself it had been finished, before the law was ever laid down. The redemption is described in verse 2. I am Yahweh your God. Listen to this description of redemption. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Yahweh had done that. Out of the house of slavery. That's gospel. God describes God's gracious work on behalf of his people there. And this verse, verse 2, serves as a sort of umbrella or a heading over the entirety of the Ten Commandments. 
Gospel, we need to see, is the thing that kicks off the Ten Commandments and hangs over the Ten Commandments. Oftentimes when the Ten Commandments appear in public buildings, they leave out verses 1 and 2. Sadly. Verse 2 tells us, we need to linger over this, it tells us that the very identity of the people who first received the Ten Commandments was redeemed by a mighty hand. That was their identity. Verse 2 makes it plain to us, listen, that the audience of the Ten Commandments was an audience who had already been saved miraculously and wonderfully by God himself, all by himself. Verse 2 tells us that the audience who will listen now to the ten words had been helpless, hadn't they, to pull themselves out of Pharaoh's iron fist, but God had done it for them. Are you with me this morning? We need to really grasp this crucial point. The point, again, I, I need to labor this, is that law comes to Israel after their redemption and not before. The law, keeping the law, was not going to be the means to earn their redemption. The people would never earn their way to God by being law keepers, just as it is today. God had already saved them before they received the law. Now the law comes to them as a further gift of grace. Chris Wright puts the matter very well when he says this. The commandments were given to Israel not so they could perhaps gain salvation by keeping them, but because God had already redeemed them, And this was how they were to live in light of that fact. Yes. Grace, we need to understand, precedes law, as we said last week. And we use New Testament examples as well. The entire book of Ephesians. Three chapters of grace. Here's who Christ is. Here's what Christ has done for you that you couldn't do for yourself. And then we get to Ephesians 4 through 6, which is, therefore, do and don't. But law comes... After grace. Amen? Amen. Our faith is not merely a simple do's and don'ts equation. Where if we simply strive to obey the do's and don'ts, God will accept us. No. A thousand times no. Grace precedes law. We are saved by a mighty hand in order to do good works. The good works don't save us. Christ saves us. And he gives us the spirit to enable us to do good works after we are saved. Well, we come then to verse 3, finally, (laughs) which is the first word of the first commandment. The only one that we have time to look at today. The first word is, you shall have no other gods before me. Now, I think there is a logical connection that we can make between verse 2 and verse 3. Look at the text with me. In verse 2, God had mentioned the fact that he'd brought Israel out of the land of Egypt, 
And in the process, we remember the story, in the process of bringing Israel out of Egypt, God had shown himself, hadn't he, to be absolutely supreme over all the small g gods of Egypt. God had routed the gods of Egypt, like my Oilers routed the ducks in game six. Still hurts. The gods of Egypt had been shown by Yahweh to be no gods at all, not worth serving, powerless. And so it stands to reason now that at Mount Sinai, the first commandment would be, you people redeemed by my mighty hand out of Egypt, you shall have no other gods before me. Yahweh says, I've just shown you the futility of serving other gods. Yes, the only God worthy of Israel's worship was Yahweh. The only God worthy of having a relationship with was Yahweh. Yahweh, in commandment or word number one, was drawing Israel to an exclusive relationship with himself. Israel was to be loyal and to remain loyal to no other God but Yahweh. There were to be no third parties entering into this relationship, just as there are to be no third parties who enter into a monogamous marital relationship. Now we need to pause here and just consider the fact, as we meditate on this verse, that this first word was very radical, very radical in the context in which it was first given, in this ancient Near Eastern context. Very radical. Radical. Because you see, if you lived in the ancient Near East during the time of Moses, chances were you were a polytheist by default. That is, polytheism, defined in my evangelical dictionary of theology as the belief in a multitude of distinct and separate deities, that's what polytheism is, the belief in a multitude of distinct and separate deities, polytheism in this time in the ancient Near East was simply the air you breathed. Polytheism, again, can be basically defined as the belief in many gods. So, for example, over in Egypt, you had the god Atom, who was the god of creation, but you also had the god Ra, the sun god, and you had the further, you had the goddess Heket, who was the goddess of fertility, not to mention Osiris, the god of the afterlife and resurrection, just to name four of the many deities that they had over in Egypt. And then the Canaanites had their gods, El and Baal and Asherah, just to name a few. Mesopotamians served the gods Bel and Marduk and Nebo, Again, the point is that in these ancient cultures, there were typically many gods, each with his own or her own domain. Whether it was rain or childbirth or crops or sun or wind. And if you lived in this part of, of the world during this time period, you pretty much took it for granted that drought 
for example, meant probably that you had to sacrifice to the rain god to try to appease him. Lack of children meant that the care and the feeding of the fertility god had to be first on your agenda. Ruined crops meant that the hail god must be angry with you, etc., Polytheism, the belief in many gods, gods who each controlled some aspect of the created order. Well, Israel, for her part, had just spent hundreds of years immersed from head to toe in the polytheistic culture of Egypt. Imagine it. And now here was Yahweh coming along in Exodus 20, verse 3, and saying to Israel in shocking, radical fashion, polytheism will not be legit for you, Israel. You shall have no other gods before me. And that phrase, before me, in the original Hebrew, reads literally, before my face. Or we could render it perhaps in my presence. You shall have no other gods before my, before my face, no other gods in my presence. Now, as John Dixon points out, God's presence is everywhere, right? So having no gods in his presence means that Yahweh is saying to Israel, in effect, all notions of deity other than me, other than Yahweh, are to be banished, to be done away with at all times, in all places, and in all circumstances. I'm it, Yahweh is saying. I work alone. I have no other equals at the supernatural level. My authority, Yahweh is saying, is the only functioning divine authority that there is. I said before, this is a radical command, even in our culture today. It rules out tolerance of other gods. Now, we might well ask, as we read this, is Yahweh being something of a narcissist here? Is Yahweh being an egotist as he gives this first commandment? Do we detect a little insecurity in Yahweh when he says, you shall have no other gods before me? And the answer is no, 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 a thousand times no. As the great Canadian preacher Daryl Johnson once pointed out, and I think this is great, when Yahweh gives this first commandment, listen, what's happening is he's actually telling us something very important about ourselves. What is it he's telling us about ourselves? Well, let me preface the answer by reminding you that the essence of a fish is to swim in water. Fishness and swimming in water go together like macaroni and cheese. (laughs) Similarly, human beings, listen, human beings go together with worship. We as human beings are worshiping creatures. We just can't help it. 
all of us are going to worship someone or something for good or for ill, it seems essential to our very nature we are worshiping creatures as human beings. And God knows this, of course. And so God, in mercy, we need to understand, in mercy, he gives us the first commandment. The first commandment is a mercy. It's a mercy because it points us, worshiping creatures, directly to the one we are to worship. Amen? Amen. God gives us this, this command we need to understand in love because he knows, listen, that only He can satisfy the longings of our hearts. We were made for Him to have pleasure at His right hand forevermore. And He wants our exclusive allegiance. He wants to protect us from false, intrusive lovers who cannot satisfy the longings and cravings of our hearts. That's what the first word is all about, and that's why it's given. It's a mercy to us, because God knows we are worshipers, and he wants to direct us to the only one worth worshiping. Now, I decided to have us linger over the first word of the ten ten words today, because really, it's the most rudimentary command of the ten. To break the first commandment means that you're in real jeopardy of breaking the remaining nine. When God is not first above all in your life, things like coveting and adultery and stealing and murder become very much real possibilities. The problem for Israel once they moved into the land of Canaan especially, is that they broke the first commandment repeatedly. They worshipped Baal and Asherah during the time of the judges. And then Solomon, during his time, led by horrible example in building altars to foreign gods and worshipping the gods of the Moabites, Sidonians, and Ammonites. And the northern kingdom... The northern kingdom of Israel also went haywire. We've read the story. They went haywire into the worship of a plethora of foreign gods. There's lots of evidence in scripture of that. But I think maybe one of the worst examples of transgressing the first commandment can be found in King Manasseh, who built altars as he led Israel, built altars and shrines to a veritable plethora, smorgasbord, of foreign gods. So that both the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom are shown throughout the Old Testament as breaking the first commandment. The problem for all of us in this room is that we likewise have broken the first commandment. Not one of us has kept the first commandment perfectly. All of us have had trysts with God substitutes, with money or power or materialism or sexual lust as examples. Some of us have gone ahead and practiced actual false religions. 
Maybe some of us have belonged to secret societies who reject the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as supreme Lord. Still others of us have valued the trends of culture more highly than what we consider to be the unfashionable dictates of God's word. And thereby we have put culture and cultural pressures in a place of supremacy above God. Others of us have consulted astrology or psychics or fortune tellers or palm readers or Ouija boards, veering away from the only source of true guidance and sovereign knowledge of the future that there is, God himself. Others of us have put credence in those folks on those outrageous TV shows who claim to be able to contact the dead. Others of us denied God for years, like I did, holding to a secularist, humanist perspective. You see, there are many, many ways to break the first commandment, and each of us has broken it. Each of us has sinned against God in this way. We've sinned against the holy God who fashioned us and who demands, it's not too strong a word, who demands exclusive worship. We have gravitated to idols and God substitutes of various sorts and have failed in our obedience to the first commandment. And the wages of sin is death. For those who die physically and die uncovered by the blood of Jesus Christ, for those who go to their grave unforgiven of their transgressions against God, unforgiven by the Jesus whom they failed to trust as Lord and Savior while they were yet alive, the destiny for those people, says the Bible, is eternal death. Eternal separation from God and conscious torment. But now there's good news. There is delicious, astonishing, wonderful, amazing, happy news. You see, Jesus is the only one in human history, the only one in human flesh, who ever managed to obey fully and perfectly all ten commandments. For example, speaking only of the first commandment that we looked at today, Jesus never, ever put any God or any God substitute before his Father. Never. Jesus Christ was all in at all times and in all ways with his Father. He was the only one who could ever say and mean John 8:29 that he how often does he do the things that are pleasing to the father always I always do the things that are pleasing to the father only he could say that and mean it always 
Jesus is the only one ever to fulfill perfectly the sum total of God's law as reflected in the ten words. Jesus is the only one ever who loves his father with all his heart and all his soul and all his mind and also loves his neighbor as himself. As Edmund Clowney puts it so beautifully and memorably, he says, Jesus' love for God the Father was so great that he was willing to be accursed by the Father in order to carry out his Father's plan of salvation for those the Father had given him. And he says, Jesus' love for his neighbor was so great that he gave up his life for those neighbors who hated him. Now, why is Jesus' perfect law-keeping in life and death good news for us? It's good news for us because in God's arrangement, and I want you to listen carefully, in God's arrangement, in the moment we repent and trust the crucified, risen, soon-coming Jesus as Lord and Savior and sovereign over our lives, in the moment when God births us miraculously by and in His Holy Spirit, in the moment... When we're saved, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to us. Hallelujah. The perfect righteous law-keeping of Jesus is reckoned to our account. Talk about gospel. God counts the believer righteous. Or as John Piper has put it, God counts sinners to be righteousness through their faith in Christ on the basis of Christ's perfect blood and righteousness, specifically the righteousness that Christ accomplished by his perfect obedience in life and death. Friends, I hope this morning you see the gospel of Jesus Christ as a jaw-dropping, unbelievable almost, Amazing thing. The gospel says that God provides for us what God requires. Amen? Amen. God provides for us what God requires. God clothes the believer in the righteousness of Jesus so that the believer is made acceptable to his holiness, acceptable to God himself. Like ancient Israel, who had been bound in Pharaoh's Egypt, helpless there until God intervened, so we, who are Christians, once lay imprisoned in what Colossians 1.13 calls the domain of darkness, that is, the awful domain of sin, death, and the devil, until, Colossians says, God delivered us and transferred us all by himself into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. J.V. Fesco has suggested that we Christians might consider Exodus 20, verse 2, from the vantage point of our situation. Let me read the Christianized version of Exodus 20, verse 2, that Fesco suggests. I am the Lord your God, church, who brought you out of slavery to Satan, sin, and death, by the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. God in grace has brought us out of our slavery by his Son 
And then, like Israel at Sinai, God has saved us so that we would gratefully obey his commands. He enables us by his Holy Spirit to obey his commands. Jesus says to the believer in John 14, 15, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And coming back around to the first commandment in Exodus 20 as we close, which I would argue is still very much in play for the New Testament believer, along with the other nine commandments. We who are redeemed sons and daughters of God are to have no other God except the one triune God who has revealed himself fully in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit are equally, co-eternally God. Dear children, keep yourselves from idols, as John puts it in 1 John. You, believer in Jesus, shall have no other gods before the triune God. This is what I want to leave you with for the week. Do you feel insecure today in some way? Your security, do you feel unprotected in some way today? Your protection, believer, are found only in the triune God. And so look to him for your security and your protection, not to mention your provision, your wisdom, your comfort, your strength, your healing, your guidance. Don't let a third party, like money or lust or anything else, pull your affections away from him. Give your life afresh. Would you do that this week to his good will and his purposes? And do it, believer, in the power that he provides. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we give you thanks and praise because in your mercy... You have given us not only the Ten Commandments, but the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord, Master, Friend, Savior. We praise you that you have not left us to our own defenses, but you have revealed from heaven the grain of the universe that we are to run with, Lord, which is your commandments, your good commandments. And thank you for the Holy Spirit that enables us to fulfill and complete what you have required. We ask, go with us this week in a fresh way, in a way that we sense in the everyday moments of our lives your strengthening presence. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's your benediction for today. Now go into the world in peace, have courage, hold on to what is good, strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, and share the gospel. Love and serve the Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen.